Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Fontable. As such, the sponsor can make suggestions for content, but the final control over the podcast remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Matt Benkendorf, CIO of Fontable Quality Growth, a global equity strategy of Fontable. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Enjoy being here today. Looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. So we always start a little bit with uh, how did you get started in investing? Can you give me a bit of a, an idea of uh, how you got into the industry? Yeah. Uh, look, I think uh, my beginning really started back with uh, an interest in business uh, most of my life, which isn't, you know, not so much in the generic sense. I grew up in a family business, so I was surrounded by business and the trials and travails and successes and failures of business sort of my whole life. And uh just kind of working up and learning how a business operates, you know, kind of gave me the, the, the step into, you know, maybe I didn't like that business in particular that, uh, that we were engaged in, but uh, it made me interested in how other businesses work uh, in general and, and what makes them easier in certain ways than others and what are obvious, you know, better ways to make money or, or to make a living and profit at the end of the day. And then that sort of over time opened me up to this other great opportunity, which was the stock market. And that's something, it's not something my family was involved in at all, but I ended up at school having friends whose parents were involved in the markets at that, at that point in sort of traditional stockbroker sense, you know, so that kind of opened my eyes in high school, you know, to this sort of world of stockbroking and, and stocks. And then that's kind of where I got the idea that, you know, that being interested in business is, and how businesses work, there was this whole world where you didn't have to just sort of settle on one. You can look at a bunch of different ones and it's just this amazing thing, a stock certificate, you can actually own a piece of that business. And in some cases where there's dividends, you get paid to own it just like a, a real owner would. So, you know, it was really, it's just being interested in business and, uh, and then being open to the, the sort of the way to access or, or sort of take advantage of the interest in business was the market at that point. Your family had a farm, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was a landscaping business and a tree farm. Yeah, so I grew up very much, you know, I always kind of joke, I started with my, I started with my hands in the dirt, and I'm gonna end up in the dirt. At some point, at the end of the line, I'll come full circle eventually. But uh, yeah, no, look, it was a good, it, it taught me one thing that was important too. while, you know, that business, what it taught me is that I didn't want to do it. And I think that was sort of the message my parents were trying to send, quite frankly, to find an easier way to make a living. Uh, you know, and my parents didn't go to college. My brother actually didn't go to college. So I was in a line of people where I was kind of a hope, you know, to kind of go 
go advance a little bit further with a college education. So I think they were trying to teach me a lesson in some sense of what other avenues are out there and easier things to do. But look, I think it also instilled in me very critically a lot of great things. And and one is certainly a sense of hard work. I mean, we work seven days a week. There wasn't limitations on hours. There wasn't overtime. There wasn't that. It was sort of all hands on deck. And that's something that's sort of if I look at the values I have and I appreciate what's led me to be successful doing this or maybe anything, if I would have been a carpenter or anything, you know, the hard work ethic is important. And this is a business where, just like others, it, it does pay to have a hard work ethic because, you know, the work is endless. So if you, you're willing to keep doing work, you can gain, gain an advantage. Yeah. So your parents had a tree farm. So I think that gives you some uh, extra ESG credentials straight away. Yeah? You know, I haven't thought about that. That's a good, you know, I really need to think about that and play that up a little bit. That's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> so, so how did you come uh, involved in global equities as, as an asset class and not, you know, agriculture? <laughs> yeah, no, look, you know, it's funny too, because, you know, I, so we, we were talking about high school a little bit and then high school led me into college and college led me into, you know, a finance degree, but within finance, it led me to taking, when I chose my courses, all things around security analysis generally, and, or things that would help me in this. So I already was really formulating in there, you know, what I, what I, what era I'd want to study, but it was interesting in all that too. Some of my most interesting classes in college that I really liked the most, which is ironic, were actually the fixed income classes. <laughs> To your question about how I ended up in sort of in global equities, actually in college, if I looked at it, you know, the, the classes I actually did well in and kind of kind of enjoyed in a, in a funny way, I enjoyed the equity ones too, were sort of fixed income because it was, look, it's an interesting, sexy world in a way around interest rates and predicting macro, which is a which is nice, you know. It, it's more the big picture thinking. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's fun. And then and bond valuation is math, you know, which is kind of clear and black and white. And then when you get into the equity realm, it, you know, there are obviously other forward predictions and future predictions you need to make in the fixed income world that are critical. But in the equity world, when you get around valuation, it becomes a little bit more esoteric, you know, what one's willing to pay and, and human behavioral psychology and elements like that, you know, something's worth 10 times earnings today and 20 times earnings, you know, at, at some short period in the future, just because something really psychologically changed in terms of what something is willing to pay for that that set of cash flows in the fixed income world, it was always a little more black and white, which was kind of, you know, I, I maybe just uh, more interesting at that point as a young learner trying to understand, yeah. you know, what you could grasp. More sort of a neat solution. Look, I just, at least I figured out I wanted to work in investing for sure. And then I ended up writing, you know, some papers and a paper in a contest in college around, you know, stock investing and actually in, in downside capture protection, funny enough, and that element of, of active management versus pa passive management. And I think then I got, I definitely migrated back to my earlier stages of liking equity as a venue. And then I got into this firm called Von Tobel, you know, that I'm here today. And I actually just had my 22nd anniversary yesterday or the day before. And, and that was just an opportunity to get in the ground floor of an equity firm that was a small shop, you know, to try to try to learn some real practical knowledge. Yeah, and I think one of the unique features that that I, as a journalist, are very much interested in is that you have sort of a philosophy where you embrace the uh, devil's advocate's point of view, mm -hmm. and you know, bringing some diversity of thinking. And, and the way you've done that is by bringing in investigative journalists within the investment team. Can you tell me a little bit about where that idea came from and, and how that started? Yeah, look, I uh, I love journalists and journalism in general, and that actually goes back to college too, in a way, in that one of my favorite classes of all the classes, even outside of finance, you know, was a class I took in news writing and reporting during college. And we had a great instructor, and it was just a fascinating exercise on how to take a 
a pile of facts that sort of dropped on your desk in a jumbled fashion and then assemble those facts into the story and then properly construct the story with the lead properly constructed and then and then progressively lessening the importance of the facts throughout the article. Just all these constructive elements was rather fascinating to me. And, and I don't know if that's why together, but I, I definitely really like that and enjoyed that. But, you know, ever since I, I started in business too as well, myself and, and the older colleagues that I admired coming into the business were voracious readers of newspapers too as well as, as, as an information source for investing, but also as a common information source just just to be smarter and be clued in into what's going on in the world around you in many ways, you know? So I, I, I love reading the papers still today. You know, I love physical papers too, still today, although I'm forced to now do things a little bit more digitally because <laughs> it's harder and harder to get a physical paper anymore, but uh, just love, love reading loves papers. So, you know, that, that idea and having a lot of respect then for what journalists do. I mean, it's incredible you know, what we get and there's this, it's incredible that we got to a point too technologically where there's a, a battle over people having to pay, wanting to, not being willing to pay for this, you know, incredible value added out there. Otherwise, what would you, yeah. you'd know nothing, right? You know, nothing if there's not somebody out there giving you this information right in a digestible understandable way so that's just sort of fascinating of itself but that actually brought us to an interesting point in the sort of mid-2000s where the technological disruption coming out of the tech sort of boom was really causing carnage obviously in the traditional newspaper or journalism industry you know to my to my point a second ago and that and the interest and appreciation for the value of, of, of what these individuals bring to the table, you know, sort of made us think about a couple things here at the firm. And, and one, there's sort of basically three outlines. It was basically an experiment at first, the use of them. And then, as you said, their application really as a, as a devil's advocate. But, you know, we thought about investing in what we do as an analyst or a portfolio manager day to day. And there are tremendous similarities. I mean, one they as a journalist as I, I just mentioned too as well they have to go out and often learn about something they don't know anything about right go there, there's something that happens go cover it or go and you got to figure out what what are the pieces the who what where when how and if it's business oriented to get more specific on that you got to figure out what is the business how does the business work all these pieces to be able to give somebody else an educated opinion about it right so the the fact assemblage is very similar to what a traditional analyst does the way they assemble facts is very value added too in that, you know, a traditional analyst needs to assemble facts, but you really don't get into finance, I find, if you're very extroverted by nature. Usually financial analysts could be a little bit more introverted. You know, they didn't get into this business because they just love talking to people and want to go run around talking to people. So the, 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 the general gumshoe uh, extroverted nature of journalists also is an enhanced research feature, right? Your willingness to pick up the phone and talk to somebody or try to get somebody on the phone who has no business talking to you or no interest in cajoling them into a conversation can be quite, you know, additive to a research and information gathering process. So that, and then that, that basic idea too, uh, that of what makes an analyst successful or not is it's one thing to get the facts and gather the facts. And that's the interesting thing too about this business, I mean, the information is all legally freely accessible and on a fair playing field for everybody. So it isn't about getting the information. It's just, about, you know, or having access to it really. It's just about your willingness to go gather it. You're willing to gather all of it. And then even that isn't the biggest differentiator. It's how do you assemble the information into a story that leads to a conclusion and an action. And that's where even the smartest people, it's why, you know, intelligence or, not, or intelligence, either book intelligence, you know, 
SAT scores, whatever, doesn't correlate naturally with just investment success or returns because you can find the information. But how how does your brain and how is your brain wired to put these different facts together in both a way that makes sense properly? It's not just a jumbled you know, bunch of smart information, but it makes sense. And then also critically, you got to convey that information to somebody too. You got to convince them of it, which is what sort of makes an dis- investment decision, right? You know, whether you're yeah. pulling the trigger yourself or someone else. So all these things and long answer to your question, but it's a great question. You know, all these things together really make journalists, I think, particularly good at investors. Yeah. So partly it's about creating that sort of narrative from, from a whole bunch of facts out there. Um, can you give sort of a, a specific example where their work influenced an investment decision? Yeah, look, we, I mean, we use them a lot in day to day and in long form, sort of long burning issues. And and they are, as you, you mentioned in the original question, they are used mainly from our standpoint as a devil's advocate. And I think that's important for people who are out there listening to have some context too. You know, while I've just gone on glowingly about journalists and their investment potential or acumen, they really particularly fit well with our investment philosophy and style. So I'm, I'm talking from my lens. Then why is that? Because we, we tend to have longer term holding periods and higher quality, more predictable businesses. And we know with that, you know, in, in sort of a short answer, one of our biggest weaknesses is complacency by nature, because right. there's a lot of virtues from patience in investing. But with our style and buying great businesses, you, one of your biggest exposures or risks is that a great business becomes not a great business at some point in time, which which is really against the grain of its history. So you got to be sensitive to that and cognizant of it when it happens critically. So that devil's advocacy positioning is very important to when you own a portfolio of really great businesses, right? To keep you off balance, you know, otherwise you're just going to be comfortable. You'll fall asleep and, and, and cause you're owning seemingly by design things that are very strong and doing very well. So you have, could have a natural tendency to just let it run. So to a degree, it's that combating falling in love with a stock. You have somebody there that constantly says, do you still want to hold this? Do you still want to hold this? That's that's the primary purpose of them, really. It's that negative, sort of that, we call it the, the negative Nancy attitude, you know, just always, well, and I don't know if you ever remember, if you watched Saturday Night Live or if you ever saw the Saturday Night Lives, they had uh, the skit always with Debbie Downer, right? So everybody would be talking happily about some topic and then Debbie Downer would chime in with something like, you know, they'd be talking about something great and she'd say, wow, didn't you know that causes cancer? And they'd be like, wow, wow. And they, she'd just take the bloom off of every rose, right? So that's kind of what they're there to be, a bit of a Debbie Downer on really great businesses, not to change, to change our opinion when it matters, yes, but to keep us a little bit off balance and, and risk aware on an ongoing basis, right? Because you definitely don't want to overdo it because great businesses will tend to be great businesses and then everything has hair. Everything has a weakness to it and you don't want to be oversensitive to it, but you want to be aware of it. So, you know, to your question, we've used them in several examples over the years that we dig, we use them to dig a lot into corporate management and alignment of interests and who are the individuals, not just in management, but on boards often and what are their backgrounds. So we use them from a governance perspective a lot. They're extremely helpful in particular markets like China and the emerging markets uh, where information just, it's there, but it's not as freely accessible and you gotta make a whole lot more phone calls to find that information. And generally though, they're looking for negative information. Once again, usually governance issues around alignment of interests, uh, understanding policy and gathering policy information because it's not as freely available as it is here. 
Uh, but they do a lot of gumshoe work too, like boots on the ground. If you think back, you know, we had major investments in the tobacco space, and then there was the rise of vaping in the tobacco space. And it wasn't the one critical element to us, but one of our investigative journalists, Mara at the time, she went out and spent a lot of time in vape shops at that point in time, just to understand the affinity and, and sort of there was a, a sort of zeitgeist and culture going on around it as an alternative. And also that distribution channel was very important to understand because cigarettes were traditionally sold in supermarkets and gas stations and areas like that. So if distribution changes, which was a tremendous competitive advantage of the tobacco companies, they just they dominated the shelf space in the traditional channel. So to understand how that on the margin, you know, could change things. So a lot of different places they they find they find these little things. We want to make sure we know all the little negative things and and understand if they could grow into a big thing or often if there's a cluster of little things that can add up together and aggregate little different things into one big bad thing. So, you know, a lot of issues like that, companies that are heavily involved in uh, mergers and acquisitions for growth, they can be very helpful on that because we're always generally skeptical of, of business models like that. They can be fine business models with a good corporate strategy and good incentivization and, and a real clear business focus. Uh, but there's a lot of room for accounting gimmickry. In, in acquisitions. And there's a lot of room to paper over bad deals from time to time. So, you know, they'll spend time talking to, you know, former employees of acquisition targets to understand, you know, what could be some weakness in what was obviously professed as being a great deal of a great company and things like that. So, uh, yeah, a lot. I mean, we, we, we started with one, I mean, to give you perspective, and we have three now on the team, okay. uh, you know. Uh, so it is working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is working. We like them and we see a lot of ground we can cover. So if I go to that point of devil's advocate, then obviously there is some friction there. How do you uh, prevent it from becoming too much friction where, you know, the analysts just go like, oh, here's negative Nancy again? Yeah, look, that's that's been very important. And that's why I, I put a disclaimer on, on this conversation for those outside listening and finding interest in it with other investment philosophies and processes in place you know, to just go rush out and grab a journalist, which look, I, I would encourage you to do that, but you got how the integration is very important too, right? So I've explained a very good, clear function and, and benefit from them, but we actually were very careful originally with the integration of them, because to your point, it is very off-putting in an organization where you, you have a bunch of, you know, very smart people who are very finely tuned and knowledgeable and who arrive at bullish uh, and positive conclusion on things to all of a sudden get dropped with a dossier in front of them that just tells them a bunch of bad stuff. I mean, your, your natural tendency as a human being is defensiveness and defensiveness can be intellectual and it can be biting and personal. It, it seems like an attack, right? When you're dropped with this, when, you, when you're a person in your position where you're making a, you know, a call with capital behind it. So we actually had integrated them very carefully over a period of years initially in that one simple thing, we did a number of simple things, but for a while, we actually had the journalists more self-directed from the top of the organization, either my predecessor or myself directing their work without the knowledge of the analysts at first, because the interaction and them knowing about it just set them off initially defensive, just knowing something was going to go on in their space. And also we learned that they would start interacting already with the journalists and we didn't want them to bias already them right as they went out because they saw they they felt defensive and then they saw thought the need to defend themselves already before you know sort of the investigation is just getting going so one way you know very easily we tried to early on until everybody over years started to really understand where they're coming from 
You know, that's to, the, the real answer to the longer term part of your question. You have to have a team that appreciates their role in the process and, and they've learned the value added they bring and they understand and value that. They've been slowly integrated into how they work to balance the positive. And then critically, they don't see them as a threat, but as a benefit to us all and a benefit to that analyst ultimately at the end of the day, because there is still always an analyst, a stock analyst making yeah. ultimate decisions there. So integration is important and you have to have critically, it's the software, but it's never to be downplayed the culture, you know, that the culture that, that allows it and fosters it to, to sort of manifest in a positive way. Yeah. So you gave that example of the vaping and the tobacco industry. Tobacco has been a big topic in Australia and, a lot of the super funds here, the pension funds, sold out of tobacco. And there was a big campaign, and I think pretty much most of the big ones have sold out. And I understand that you, you have done some thinking around how to best take it out of a portfolio, because you can't just simply say, okay, we'll just divest from the tobacco companies and just upweight everything else that's in the portfolio. Yeah. Because then you get different skews and different dynamics to the end portfolio. What is your thinking around that? How is the best way of doing that? Yeah, look, it's uh, it actually it's sort of it, it's the tobacco question is sort of broader, sort of broadened out into how do we think about ESG in general too, and and it starts with this. Uh, and, and generally speaking, look, we manage money in a fiduciary relationship on the behalf of asset owners, and really, I think ESG starts with asset owners' desires and their goals and objectives, right? And I think that's our job first to re to not just react react because that sounds sort of late stage but listen listen respond and and follow if you can in line with your investment capabilities and philosophy and process it's what the asset owner wants because it's their money and it's their views and i think that's the right way too because what you find in esg although there's you know now as it's more developed but still existing today different asset owners have different priorities and focus you know as you said in australia it was much earlier in areas like tobacco, right? And, and other areas, you know, like the US were, I would say on one end of the scale, much further behind it. I don't think it's also fair necessarily to react to two very diverse asset owners the same exact way. If they who own and control the money at the end of the day have different priorities and objectives that they want to achieve. So I think ESG and tobacco in this example started with the asset owners and for Australia in particular, you know, going ex tobacco there first for those asset owners, because we respected that what their will was, we respected the reasoning behind it. Clearly, it was well reasoned why they didn't want to have to do it and, and or be involved in it in those businesses. And we could do it without altering our investment outcome or results. And that's sort of how we treated tobacco as it spread more across the world in terms of a hard view. The, the Australian uh, situation was quite unique, I think, because a lot of it was driven by a doctor who dealt with cancer patients. I think it's uh, Dr. Bronwyn King. Yeah. And, and she was treating these patients. And at one stage, she realized, wait a minute, my super fund, my pension fund is investing in these companies. Yeah. And she had a very clever argument. She basically said, I understand that engagement is better than divestment because you want a company to get better, but there's nowhere to go with a tobacco company. That that's just their business money. Yeah. So she she has sort of an interesting point there, and, and that facilitated, uh, um, I suppose, a lot of these divestments because I think more in general the companies or the, the pension funds here prefer engagement over divestment. 
Yeah, look, I agree with that. And that, look, and I, I believe that that initiative in Australia came from a really good place too, right? I think that's a great organic place for it to come from and a good realization. And it's a very thoughtful realization too, because the natural tendency, I think, would be to think divestment over reaction and not even talk about, I think, the most important point that you mentioned that we also agree with is engagement is the most powerful thing to, to enforce change, right? I think we've always thought that too in our businesses. And we, 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 we own, you know, very actually fairly highly rated, you know, ESG companies that run very clean businesses. But if we want to make them better, you got to, an owner has the first seat at the table, you know, to change a business. You know, I think it's one thing to be an outsider trying to influence change versus an insider trying to influence change. And I think with that doctor's observation too, being an insider in general puts you at the table to institute change. But in some areas like that, right, what the core business is, uh, that's more difficult than going there and saying you need to end your business. Right. Uh, I think you can make a lot of other positive changes around environmental, you know, uh, environmental dangers, influence, degradation, environmental, you know, negative outcomes from your core business and what it does that being at the table can be very effective. Right. Because because there are just better ways to do things. Right. It's not tobacco or no tobacco. It's how do we produce products? How do we package them? How do we distribute them? And isn't there just a better way from an environmental outcome perspective to do that? And there being an owner of a business and influencing the how and why we should do this helps. I think what we also all don't need to understand, I think at the end of the day, and I think you, you gain a lot of perspective in life doing this too as well and, and, and just observing over long periods of time. If you think about tobacco too, you know, tobacco has been hurt by engagement or sorry, divestment programs or engagement both, you know, for a while, but look, market dynamics take care of it at the end of the day too. You know, the, the, the economies are still amazing things, right? You know, a product that has the impact that tobacco has will ultimately have a finite life by design. You know, sorry, no, no poor pun intended there, you know. And, and so when you make the, the divestment decision, um, how do you pull it out of an existing portfolio? Because I think uh, coming back to that earlier point, you can't just get rid of it and then, you know, have what is left all upweighted. We look at our companies in different buckets sort of there's different companies that play different roles in the portfolio and tobacco companies played a specific role. They were def defensive, durable growth. That was their role. Obviously they had lack of economic sensitivity. So when in a totality of a portfolio, a portfolio is kind of like you have different players on the field, right? You have strikers, you have midfielders, you have defenders, right? On a field and they all, they have different roles, right? The defenders aren't scoring goals. They're not playing up and vice versa. The forwards aren't playing back. Uh, so the portfolio companies have a similar dynamic when they mix together, right? So for the tobacco that were more defensive growth businesses, the divestment was quite easy in that we just find better defensive growth businesses, which there are, and they come in different ways. They come in some of their sort of sister companies in the staple space itself. You know, we like, you know, beverage companies, uh, and consumer product companies and food from a recurring nature. We like convenience store businesses in general. There tends to be a high, you know, uh, competitive advantage to having proximity and physical location and repeat and quick purchases and access to products. And it's a fragmented industry and things like that. But then look, there's defensive growth businesses in healthcare too. I, the exact polar ironic opposite of tobacco, but you can have companies in the healthcare business that play the same role and give you the same benefit to the portfolio at the end of the day. And that's probably the biggest win-win when the capital goes, you know, apples for apples from a tobacco company to a medical technology company that can give you the same type of growth in those instances, 
you know, and in, in, in tobacco health, some of the med tech companies, higher growth, but a high single digit sort of earnings growth rate, a couple percent dividend yield, sort of some sort of low double digit totalized annual re, total return, and then real durability in, in, in an economic down cycle. That's how you, that's that portfolio construction element and the roles companies plays is what, what leads you to the decision of what to do with that tobacco company capital and how you get it to end up in an effective place, thinking about the role it played. Because it wasn't, it was never about it's and it, it, to be clear, look, it's never really about any company and what it does at the end of the day. You know, it, 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 it companies are an economic means, you know, to deliver some sort of pattern, consistency, and rate of profit. So you're making trade-offs amongst them. You know, whether they're making you know widgets, whether they're selling a service, whether they're doing this or that, they have characteristics. Defensive growth businesses, they could be very high secular, long-tailed growth businesses. Uh, or they can be somewhat in between sometimes where they're high quality, good attributes, not as long as a multi-decade tail, but things look quite good. And maybe there's a valuation dislocation that gives you a shorter term opportunity there. And that's how you switch capital around, whether it's tobacco or something else. You, you talked a little bit about sustainable businesses. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your style? So you invest in the quality growth style. If we look at the quality part of it, how do you define it? And I think you've also seen some examples where it's not such a good interpretation of quality. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, look, it's really, uh, it's actually kind of natural too, and interesting your question in, in the times we're in right now, right? Because I think, you know, we're at a point where markets have been, generally speaking, in the developed uh, world, at least so strong for so long, that sort of everything looks good. Uh, you know, a lot of things look good and that's where it gets dangerous, you know, and, and, and that, co couple that with basically smart enterprising marketing oriented people who all tend to navigate towards language that works, you know, everything is more and more called high quality and it's called high quality growth because that's what's been working. And when people hear that, it naturally sounds pretty good. <laughs> and so people have clued that in. So I think your question is critical in terms of what is it though, really at the end of the day. And I think you have to start with the reality where I think most people miss when they just throw around terms, you know, like high quality or a quote unquote great business. You know, you have to start with the reality that there actually aren't that many great businesses in the world. So first, be careful from a mindset perspective when you throw around the term great, you know, look, you know, with our, it's okay with our kids. We need to call our kids great all the time. Everybody's <laughs> kids are great. That's a little different, right? But when it comes to investing in businesses, be careful when you just call everything great, you know, first of all, because there is a big difference between a great and what are most businesses that could be just good or average. And that is just sort of the law of the world too, right? There's outliers and then there's the large bulk which are average, you know, when we get to great and what, what we call great and into your question about what is a high quality business, you know, really you, you define the business as being great. And that has some very obvious characteristics that are clearer for people, but are exaggerated sometimes in terms of the economic returns in the businesses. You know, when you really dig into it, the real underlying returns and in invested capital and in critical little nuances to that of when that business is grow, when that business grows, how does it redeploy capital and, and how are those incremental rates of return on capital? You know, so there's areas around economic fundamentals that we get into that also others can, you know, employ. And I think you'll find commonality, even those if, if we sort of take now the group of, of kids, so to speak, who believe in are in the high quality gang, you know, but then where we differentiate, I think a little bit are in a couple aspects. Uh, one, I think very critically is in terms of how we, you know, view predictability in a business and our sensitivity 
to predictability in a business. That's a lever in our definition of high quality that's quite important to us at our firm. And I think there are variations of sensitivity or affinity to that in other definitions of high quality. And it's, it's what leads you to more high-flying companies that could have great underlying economics to come in the future, and you're willing to be more forward-looking in your view of how that business go from where it is to have those great economics, and you see some early glimpses of that, and you're willing to jump onto that right away and kind of ride the risk of that materializing. And then we're more patient in that example. We like to see things already manifested in, in existence as a burden of proof. And we're willing to forego the earlier gains to reduce the risk of actually seeing something happen because then it becomes more predictable to us if it can actually do that and continue to do that. It has to do with economic sensitivity too, uh, which has sort of been irrelevant in the developed markets for a while, right? Because we've had a long unending cycle for some period of time that's been rather stable. And then you've got massive outside intervention by central banks to sort of save or, or underpin you know, economies and markets that hasn't existed in the prior, you know, many decades of history of markets. So that's a new nuance sort of giving a maybe a false sense of safety or comfort, but it's been become really well ingrained at this point in time. But we always sort of in terms of predictability, wonder and want to make sure we own businesses that if we should hit a recession tomorrow or God forbid, you know, a depression or a real deep, you know, financial crisis, that we own investments that will be more resilient through that and what they do. And that's a big part of how we define high quality as well. Yeah. Talking about resilient businesses, uh, we, of course, had a very strange 18 months or 20 months uh, behind us with uh, Mm -hmm. the coronavirus um, pandemic breaking out across the world. How uh, did it influence uh, your investment thinking and, um, and, and, and the portfolio as well? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, coronavirus is kind of, you know, wow, well, interesting as a, as a tone down word for all of us who've, <laughs> who've lived this now. But if you do think back, right, I mean, and, and we have to think back now, and I have to really sometimes look at the years and, you know, really calendarize the years. And then you get into kids' school years, which makes it even more complicated in terms of how long it's been and how school years have dovetailed with, with sort of calendar years. But, you know, think about pre-COVID for a second, you know, December 19 or December 2019, you know, January 2019, we were, everybody was talking about, do bull markets die of exhaustion? You know, do they, it'd been going on for so long. We're at rather full employment, sort of, we, it was, we were, we were rather full employment. GDP growth was actually, I think, to much to people's chagrin, back around trend line in the U.S. for perspective, you know, bumping around 2%. And it sort of was what it was. And everybody's just wondering, all right, now what? You know, and it's kind of, I think without COVID, that's how you're looking at 2020. In hindsight, 2020 was the year of the market had accelerated, you know, sort of had experienced a lot of gains. And now growth was normalizing back down the trend. And there wasn't a lot of the now what, you know, the tax gain or the tax cut gain in fiscal policy here had waned and all that. And then I think the point to your question with with COVID showed us that things happen in life. You know, even when things are just going fine, and there is nothing foreseen on the horizon as there was really at that point in time. Things were just sort of uh, were what they were, glass half full, glass half empty, sort of bumping along. That's what life and investing brings you. And in this version, it, it brought an, uh, a, an interesting one, right? It brought in a one in a hundred year one. It didn't bring the financial crisis because everybody's always waiting for another housing bubble burst. And it didn't bring a tech bubble burst. Everybody's always waiting for that. In recent memory, it had to go back in the old playbook 
you know, to the early 1900s for a, for a health pandemic, you know, and outside of a few people with a YouTube video here and there who had predicted something like this happening, <laughs> you know, who turned out to be so prescient, you know, it was a real wild card. And so I think that that's the lesson too, in terms of why style wise, we are what we are too, in a way is just you, you expect the unexpected, always live expecting the unexpected because it happens, you know, it can drag on for a while and normal with some sort of normality without it, but eventually it does happen. And you want to make sure that that doesn't, you know, wipe you out yeah. when it happens. And then, but from an investing perspective, it was actually a rather unique too, in that one, the recession was so short. Uh, the reaction to help things from a monetary policies was so quick because I think, you know, you know, uh, central bankers have a hand on the trigger already from the last crisis. Still, their hand is still literally on the financial spigot or monetary trigger yet not wanting to release it. So they were ready to shoot their bullets at it. So it ended up being a very short lived downdraft with a lot of, you know, monetary. And then for the first time in a while, fiscal support came in governments rallied then to spend money, which, you know, had been happening to various degrees and with various, you know, bits of frustration or not happening around the world in other areas that needed help like Europe, etc. from other problems. So, you know, it was unique. You had a big, quick, short down draft, which is extreme and scary because it was something we hadn't seen in a while, but a lot of fire engines came to the rescue rather quickly. And then here we are coming out of it and you see things that you would have never expected, right? I mean, you, you, the concerns you had then versus now, who would have thought you would have record high auto purchases, you know, like a big ticket item, like all, and, and you think with something like this happened, that's seemingly very scary. Who would have thought that people would go out and start spending on some of the biggest risk averse oriented purchases they make in life, right? Is that because they don't want to go on public transport anymore? No, I know, you know, I don't think it is that necessarily. It's funny. It wasn't, I think, because all these people were just relying on Uber yet. I don't think Uber had done that good of a job yet of supplanting, you know, personal auto ownership. It, it's an interesting element of people, you know, those sort of just, I guess, you know, as they say, it's shopping therapy. Spending money feels good to people, you know, maybe when they feel a little down and the more you spend, the better you feel. Maybe there's a, there's a relationship there's there. There's probably an element of truth to that because I think I ended up buying three televisions during the pandemic and I'm not sure if I needed all of them. Exactly. It's that, you know, you saw people, which then there's more things that make sense, right? So then there's some rational sense, but it happened, people start spending on their homes, right, naturally. So landscaping, home improvement, renovations, things like that, that, okay, that you kind of can get a little bit if you would have told somebody ahead of time, something's gonna lock somebody in their home for a while. What are they apt to do with their money they're not spending somewhere else? So there's some, there's some, I think, interesting, unexpected things that happened. And then there were some more things that if you were told the scenario you would have expect to happen. Uh, but I think, look, you got to be surprised at the, the firepower that came to the rescue. I think the rate at which we were recovering from it still with the uncertainty, like we had no vaccine on day one, we had nothing, you know, the speed at which the world developed vaccines, rolled them out, you know, everything in life. I think one thing you learn investing too, and in life is nothing happens ever as fast as people want it to have. I think people are perpetually frustrated by things never happening fast enough, but come on. I mean, this happened pretty fast, yeah. frustratingly slow as we live through it, but yeah. In hindsight, it, it did happen pretty quick. And here we are, you know, and now I think you get to a point where we're back to challenges, you know, we're going to be back to the non COVID challenges pretty soon. And there are a few of them. So did the investigative journalists get involved in sort of assessing the situation of the pandemic? You know, that's one area I must say, while I love them, and they do a lot of great work around a whole lot of areas, pandemic specific, 
it wasn't a particular area they, they did a lot. I think all of us became expert virologists as much as we could overnight from the layman to the investor having to consume all this stuff. So we we're all sort of fascinating behind, because we weren't just thinking about our companies. We we're all thinking about our personal lives and our families and this and that. So I think everybody yeah. had such a vested interest in knowing as much as we could possibly know as we could know it about it that the journalists didn't help us there as much. But you know, it was a, you did have to, from our traditional investment philosophy, while everything was very consistent, the types of things we owned were consistent, look, even owning high quality companies, which we started talking about, even in the face of COVID, even the great companies, given what it was doing something for the first time in a long time, absolutely shutting down what is a great business, right? Overnight for an indeterminate period of time did cause us to react from an investment process standpoint in the near term to some degree in that, you know, nobody in their conservative modeling and scenario and ongoing scenarios predicts zero revenue all of a sudden and, and zero revenue, maybe for six months or nine months or whatever, right? No financial crisis, no anything, particularly in areas that are actually more durable, like staples in certain businesses and ones that operate sort of on trade and restaurants, right? Like there's no business there. Uh, retailers, you know, they're shut down overnight for an indeterminate period of time. So we actually did not just not the journalists necessarily, but as financial analysts, we really we had already determined these were great businesses with as a part of that strong balance sheets. But the first time you really had to go in and really get a little bit even more nuanced on things like balance sheet analysis, you know, it didn't come down to just debt levels now and cash levels. It came down to accessible lines of credit, size of lines of credit, terms of lines of credit, how much could they flex real extreme cash burn rates down so that a great, even a great business could survive? Because you did have to make a few assumptions on that. And we were able to make some reasonable assumptions on that too, expecting cash burns out to as far as 18 months initially from the onset, you know, leaving us some room to be right about some things coming back. So it, it did have an influence on in our process yeah. in short term in some ways like that. So because you invest in sort of the long term in quality businesses, sustainable business models, did the pandemic help in sort of weed out some of the competitors of the companies that you hold in the portfolio? Look, I think what it's done is, you know, helped us in other ways, you know? So first, I mean, directly to your question, what we generally do in a downturn is we start to redeploy capital amongst our names into names that are more disproportionately hurt because they're more opportunistic and they're more coiled spring of future return, you know, and that's the one of the other greatest lessons in investing for everybody, you know, returns are made in down markets, not up markets. Generally speaking, that's when you buy things cheaper and betting higher future upside potentially. So our behavior is generally, even in the portfolio sense, our companies are in rather fortified competitive positions by design initially, but even in the competitive set of our companies, we whittle out weaker links and redeploy that capital as all share prices or some share prices are hit disproportionately into lesser names, usually higher conviction, more stable, more beaten down to get our coiled spring in that opportunity as compressed as it can be. I think that's our job as an investor to take advantage of that. So, you know, the competitive dynamics of the companies that we owned didn't change. The competitive dynamics of the portfolio change in that situation and you react to that. And then on the other hand, it does create this other opportunity to your more to your question and point, I think. Look, it accentuated the money flow into the tech space in general, and it accentuated a lot of visionary, I don't know if that's the right word, visionarianism, if that's even a word, into people's willingness to think of COVID beneficiaries and speculate in the near term on what are long-lasting effects. And I think that actually on the inverse creates opportunity because people love to do that. They love to extrapolate the near term into the long term. You know, we all live in the now, and then we all feel like the now is persistent. 
generally. So that nuance of COVID, and it wasn't just a now for like a day, right? So it was really hammered into people for months and quarters and years of the now. So it's very hard to shake out of that and envision the what was and the future. You just think the now is what's going to be. And I think that euphoria, funny enough, on certain areas, which is driving the market, you know, to some, I think, some some more scary places in certain areas, leaves under other areas. And what's been actually a fairly rapidly overall appreciating market still underappreciated. Yeah. So that's kind of nice about it too, because then you got to go back to my comment about, well, where were we pre-COVID? Sort of, we were at the beginning of 2020, end of 2019, where things sort of things were where they were. So, you know, COVID, you know, and I, I'm always very careful about this. Look, it was, a, it, it created a tremendous health toll uh, uh, globally, and it was terrible, you know, but from an investing sense, it, it actually reshuffled the deck a little bit for investors, and it gave them an opportunity if they were reactive there yeah. for their goal. And, and looking forward, I, I read once an article where it sort of looked at pandemics throughout the centuries, and, and it sort of made a case that every pandemic had led to some sort of change um, and, and usually facilitated by technology, but also societal change. Do you expect going forward to see some of these changes coming out of the COVID crisis? Look, I think uh, with, I'm a, as you can tell from some of my earlier comments, I'm always a little bit of a skeptical of, of massive change. And I also ascribe to, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same a little bit in life sometimes. <laughs> Just, it often looks in a different flavor, but human behavior is generally pretty enduring. And we're, in one aspect, people had all this pessimism about human behavior, you know, sort of normalizing, but we're pretty gregarious creatures, you know? And I do think people, and you see that in some pent up demand, people generally do actually want to, you know, be people again, as, as they sort of largely were. So I think some of the effects are exaggerated. But I think what COVID definitely did do, which was important, uh, to your point, and, and, and you have to take notice of, it actually accentuated a lot of the other structural change that was already going on, you know, the use and proliferation of technology was already going on pre COVID and COVID in a lot of ways just accentuated it and the beneficiaries of that in, in a number of technology areas. So it was, COVID was very important, but it was an accelerant. It was like fuel. Look, e-commerce was growing already like very nicely, but you know, COVID threw gasoline on the accelerant of that too as well. So I, I think it was an accentuator, you know, some balance of work life right now. There's a bigger debate going on about that and return to the office and an app, but even pre COVID, you know, I think people were assessing some quality of life and remote working because of technology was already enabled to some degree and some mix or variation, you know, COVID accelerated maybe a little bit of adaptation of that or people recognizing the benefit of that, that probably would have gotten there eventually, maybe in a couple more years, they would have yeah. gotten the opportunity to work at home a day or so I, I, I did, I think COVID has been an accelerant, you know, to keep the long story short, there are a lot of trends already in place. I think a lot more of the other persistent trends will stay in place. And I think a lot of them are unrelated to COVID. I think a lot of the other meaningful structural trends going on right now are more to your, your, your word about sort of persisting and ongoing. Look, global relationships, that shakeup was going on pre-COVID already. Like COVID isn't going to help that in a blame game story or narrative, right? And where COVID came from and this and that. But tension existing between countries like the US and China was there already. That cat had been let out of the bag and Europe was getting dragged into that. And Australia, where you sit, right? The tension between Australia and China in, in certain ways. So I think those global political issues are more of the persistent issues too as well, that normalizing pre-COVID are the ones that are still lingering and, and to be resolved and ongoing, likely for investors to certainly take you know heed of.
Yeah, it's, it is interesting how, how things are accelerated by, by the pandemic. I, uh, I think when we came out of the, the lockdown here, which was only sort of a week and a half ago for, for, for the kids, basically, I, I went into a hardware shop and so mm. had to get into the car, yeah. drive for 15 minutes to the hardware shop, shop yeah come back and like this should really just take two clicks on my computer <laughs> yeah yeah look that's it's, you know so there is that convenient factor right so look i think that is it's kind of that mix which is interesting and this is where there's some opportunity too though right and let's look at some corporate behavior in a way right so i think there's certainly we've learned a lot through e-commerce there's a lot of stuff we should just click and buy but look, I think in other aspects with being pent up from COVID, you know, people want to go back out and shop too in an experience, right? Just because they can and they're here and they're alive and they've got some money in their pocket, you know, and they're back to my shopping therapy comment, you know, there's a little bit in that. And, and I, I mentioned the corporate behavior point. I mean, look at what Amazon's trying to do now. Like Amazon's the king of e-commerce, right? But they talk more about what they want to do more in the physical store space now, right? Because one area is clothing they wanted to get into, right? And so there's certain areas of shopping experience. Well, yes, there's e-commerce and clothing purchased online now, right? We got to watch the world as it develops, I think, and always be careful, you know, of over-extrapolating trends, but also seeing both sides of the coin too, you know, where something might be harmful in a certain way, but still there might be something more persistent on the other side of that same coin where that pessimism overflows there and then create some opportunity, investment opportunity, you know, and like there's, there's, I think there's retailers who will be fine too, in a way, and maybe they get a revitalization somehow in certain ways too. You got to be open-minded to that kind of evolution too. Yeah. But let's finish up with a bit of crystal ball guessing. Um, if we look out for sort of the next uh, 12 to 18 months, where, where do you uh, look for opportunities? What sort of sectors uh, interest you at the moment? Yeah, look, I think there's uh, there's amazingly as fast as we talked about it as COVID has sort of normalized, you know, there are certain areas that still have a lot of normalization uh, to go. And that's good low hanging fruit yet still. And fortunately for us in our high quality sphere, it actually for to our detriment with some near term relative underperformance, not doing as well, quite as well on the upside. It's what's left some more pent up locked in coiled spring return in the portfolio in a couple sectors. I think staples for one. You know, in particular, we didn't actually own it. When you see our staples, you think, well, you know, a bunch of staples did do well during the pandemic. They're actually not the ones we owned in the quality growth space. There was a massive re revitalization in, I think, worse, longer term growth staples, you know, like physical food retailers, going back to your point about shopping, you know, and, you know, store models with a lot of square footage out there where people are spending less time in them. You know, isn't a good recipe with goods that can be easily delivered to your doorstep, you know, that are recurring in nature. So, but they got a boost, right? Because everybody was pantry stocking. Yeah. So like for like sales through through the roof and they did well, you know, but other areas of staples, like I mentioned in beverages, you know, names great blue chip companies today, like Coca-Cola, right? They still got a bunch of business done on trade and stadiums and 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 airplanes and, and restaurants and things like that, where it's just not happening yet, particularly in the emerging markets too, right? So you know, Staples, there's great companies there with great economic returns, and they've got normalization and good long-term growth post-normalization still, too, with good profitability and pricing power. And in healthcare, too, funny enough, it kind of dovetailed with the Staples area that we're in, which was unique to COVID, and hitting a couple of our core areas in the near term. You know, healthcare med tech companies are fantastic companies, but think about pandemic. Look, it really impacted their business because they didn't do anything wrong. The, the, the need for their products was there, but hospitals just had to shut down operating wards to prepare and be rightfully prepared for an onslaught of severely ill patients. So there's a lot of pent up demand there to normalizing still, and the demand for their products doesn't disappear, right? 
And, yeah. and that's a, one way they're better than some other companies, right? Where, you know, if, because of the pandemic, you might not have bought something you wanted to, and you probably won't go back and buy two of them, right? Like if you didn't buy a Coke at a ball game, next time you go to a ball game, you're not gonna buy two Cokes to make up for the Coke you missed in certain ways. So it's negative in that way, but good because you'll be back buying Cokes again on their old trajectory. But healthcare, look, if you needed the pacemaker, you need the pacemaker. Yeah. You know, you, you got, you, you're not gonna, you didn't forego the sale of that pacemaker as a company. Uh, you just push that out a little bit in one example or a heart stent or or several other areas in med tech. So that's the, that area still too has been a laggard. A number of names have been a laggard there yet. Uh, looking in there's great names, even in tech space, you know, hiding sort of in plain sight, you know, uh, great, great blue chip global companies like Visa and MasterCard, right? I mean, they drive a significant portion of profits still from cross-border travel and the normalization of both corporate and tourism travel cross-border that's incrementally more profitable to them and still, as you can imagine, severely depressed. And 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 it will normalize, though, going back to some of my early games. I don't know exactly when the point in time will be, but it will normalize. And some great companies like that, you know, uh, while they've done well, they're still underpricing because there's bent up demand and catch up there that the market's more excited running around and catching the nearer term flies. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I think it's it's actually it's interestingly now, you know, fairly there's a fair spread of opportunities still as, as arguably, you know, later cycle it is now with a lot of warning signs sort of flashing, which is the good news. But look, I would caution people out there right now. I think, you know, the hair on the back of our neck is standing up right now. Certainly, you know, we feel good because we have a more durable, predictable style and the companies we own are more durable, predictable, but I think people's hair on the back of their neck should be up right now, certainly. And they should be aware uh, and risk aware right now. You know, I think the party has been going for some time and we act, I think, as as investors right now is a little bit like designated drivers. You know, we have to spend a lot of time with clients right now. You know, a lot of people are drunk and happy right now. Right. And and that's the way it always goes. But you need a designated driver sometime to say, look, I need let me drive for you. I know we feel great, you know, but we got like, we have a have a somewhat sometimes of a sober outlook, you know, in areas. And I think in, in driving, it's good to have it's obviously critical to have a sober outlook and in investing. I think a sober outlook always serves you well too, because the 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 consequences are devastating to say the least of not having a sober outlook when something bad manifests. Yeah, 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 for sure. So some words of caution there. Well, Matt, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you very much for your time, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Great, yeah, thanks for having me. Loved it. Thanks for the conversation and the questions. Thank you for listening to the I Three podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.